Well, good morning. You know, I joked with Daniel a couple weeks ago when he asked when he had asked me to preach that uh, he was adhering to the traditions of uh, the American Church, which is like there's four Sundays that uh, if you look at churches with, mul- with multiple pastors or multiple people who preach and everything like that, there's four Sundays of the year that like you have a high percentage chance of looking at who's preaching. It's probably not the senior pastor. There's the Sundays of Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend. And then there's the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Christmas, you know, because for whatever reason, but that's all good. I'm just, I was just giving him a hard time. I don't think that's really why he asked me to preach today. Um, so today, as I was um, praying and thinking about what to preach on, because Daniel just kind of gave me an open mic and said, here, preach on whatever you want. And um, one of the things... Um, that um, God was just laying on my heart a couple weeks ago was um, this idea of, of loving our neighbors and, and what does that look like and what does this look like? And then so I wanted to really pick a passage that really kind of touched on that and hits on that. Um, and I figured what better passage than Jesus' own parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, so that's what we're going to be at today. That's what we're going to be looking at. Um, so if you have your Bibles... Um, be in Luke 10, um, starting in verse 35, or sorry, verse 25. Um, and we're going to kind of go through this passage, and we're going to talk about some different things, some different um, points that I want to talk about um, that would have been drawn from this um, kind of exchange that's going on between Jesus and this lawyer, this man who's like basically seeking to um, justify himself, this man who's kind of seeking to like feel good about where he stands in terms of his relationship with God. Um, so if you look at verse 30, 25, it starts, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you are familiar with the gospels, um, hopefully that's not the first time you've heard that, that, that statement, that, that uh, phrase. Um, in fact, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that's actually like throughout Scripture. This actually is called what's called the Jewish, the Jews called the Shema. This is from Deuteronomy. Um, it's a uh, thing they would recite. They would talk about it. It starts with like, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, and there's this statement that talks about loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And Jesus actually himself quoted this during different parts of his ministry. Um, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, um, and this is also, there's, there's a similar exchange in Mark as well. Jesus gets asked um, by the Pharisees, by these men that are trying to like, you know, kind of trap him. Um, if you, Matthew 22 verse 34, he says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus makes this statement. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, it's almost like a summary he's saying is if you, if you take all the law and what it's saying, what it's trying to teach you to do, if you're following the law 
of the Old Testament and everything that it was trying to guide the Jews to do, it's going to be categorized in these two commandments. There's loving the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then there's loving your neighbor as yourselves. And Jesus, in this exchange back in Luke now, when he's confronted with it, when the, when the man states this, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, from that, at first, if you take that out of context and you pull it and you'd be like, well, Jesus is saying that like, all I have to do to live is just you know, love, my, love the Lord my God. That's, that's easy. I love God. And all I have to do is love other people. Yeah, I love other people and I'll make sure, you know, I'll continue to try to love other people. But, you know, this, this isn't so hard. This isn't so bad. And it's almost like Jesus knows that like this man is just trying to look for a way to just kind of make himself feel good about what he's doing. And he says, do this and you will live. The trick is, if you look at, read the law and all that it requires as far as like, what does it really look like to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, there's a lot to it. And it requires a lot. And you have to do it perfectly in order to earn your salvation, in order to earn eternal life. Um, but this man's kind of blind to that. And you know right away, like even for ourselves, like I said, like when you first hear that statement of loving the Lord your God, lo- loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, right away what you might fall into right away is you start thinking about yourself and like, yeah, yeah, I, I do that. I, I, I I love God. If someone asks me right to my face, like, who do I love most in this world? I'm going to tell them I love God more than anything. I'm going to say that. I'm going to, but the question is, how are you expressing it? The question then becomes, really, are you willing to really evaluate your life like, and really actually pick on yourself a little bit in terms of like, how does this really play out in your heart? If we talk about loving the Lord with all our hearts and we were able to kind of carve you open as far as your passions and we're able to just put them on display and well, let's look at where your passions lie. What kind, of, what, kind of, what kind of things are you consumed of day by day as far as what you really care about and what you're really like excited about and what's really like fueling you? Is it gonna be all wrapped up around God? Or are there going to be other things that are kind of in there? Are there going to be sports? Are there going to be um, hobbies? Are there, is there going to be um, money, possessions, things? Are there, are there other things that are consuming the things that are really driving you day by day to like get up every morning and, 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 and go out there and live your life? Are there other things that are like burning in your heart as far as what you're really caring about and passionate about? What about in your soul? What about, what, is that, what does that mean to love the Lord your God with all your soul? Um, there's a lot that has to do with just your spirit. Like what, 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 what drives your spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit that is now, that you are surrendering to? Or is it other things that drives you every morning that your spirit is like, comes alive when you interact with that one person every day or your spirit comes alive your soul comes alive when you get to just you know sit down and enjoy your favorite tv show 
You know, are there other things that like that fuel you as far as like, man, this is really what just livens me up, makes me feel great inside. What about loving Lord your God with all your mind? What does this look like? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your mind? I think one of the things um, that I fall to is looking right away, what, what, do we, what do we believe about Scripture? What do we believe about what it teaches? There's a passage in 2 Timothy I'm going to read from 2 Timothy verse, or chapter 3, starts with chapter 3. <clears throat> verse 16 says, all scripture, is, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, most of you maybe have, a lot of you probably have heard that before, but what's important to know is what, what follows it right afterwards. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you love the Lord your God with all your mind, are you surrendering your thoughts, your beliefs, your intellectual um, wisdom to what Scripture teaches? Or are you letting your own philosophies kind of intermix in with... what you want to believe or how you want to behave or how you want to act and where you want to land? Are you letting culture's influences kind of skew you in terms of, you know, so that we kind of had this kind of cut up, meshed up Bible where we have scripture verses here that we definitely believe. I mean, who who doesn't love John 3.16 after all? Like, that's an easy thing that we can always get all get behind. But when you look at other passages that are a little bit more, you know, calling out of certain things or directly referring to things like, oh, that's a little bit harsh or that's a little bit hard to like kind of adhere to. So I'm going to kind of mix it in with this like theme of like kind of just love and everything's going to be great. And, you know, we're going to mesh it all in the middle. And what ends up happening is when we don't love the Lord our God with all our mind, we're not surrendering our own beliefs, our own philosophies, our own intellectual view of things to his word and to his spirit, but we're allowing ourselves to kind of influence the way we see things and the way we do things. This is especially um, dangerous for, for churches. Um, for, like, for like the greater church, for individual churches, what is your view of scripture and what are you going to hold to? How are you going to, what is it going to, what is it going to mean to your church and to your doctrine and to your beliefs? Is it going to be something that we just say we believe, but we don't necessarily have to stand solid on? Or is it an absolute that we're going to hold to? And it's very easy for churches to kind of start to make compromises. 
There's a lot of churches in America that make a lot of compromises when it comes to what the Word of God teaches versus how they feel like it can actually play out in this kind of liberal, kind of, you know, different culture that's wanting us to adhere to its standards. And it's not just the Church of America that we've seen this in history. Like, literally, churches throughout history have always been subject to having this kind of fall towards its passions or towards its things. During the time of Martin Luther, okay, if, you, if you've ever, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Luther, but it's a really cool movie. Um, kind of hard to sit through sometimes. It's a little bit long. And it doesn't, it's not an action movie, so if you're all about action movies, you know, it might not be the movie for you. Uh, but in the movie Luther, there's this scene where Martin Luther, before, during when he, you know, he was a monk, and then he gets to travel to Rome, and he's so excited about this trip to Rome because this is the Roman Catholic Church. This is the, where, the, you know, where the Vatican is and where everything is. And he's so pumped. And yet he gets on the streets, and all he sees is people selling indulgences, which are things that, like, basically, hey, Steve, I want you to give me 100 bucks, and if you give me 100 bucks for this uh, bookmark, that's a really special bookmark, by the way. It was, like, uh, made by the paper of something or another. Um, <laughs> you know, but if you do this, you know, then... 10 years off of purgatory for you, buddy, you know? Um, and, you know, things like, I mean, that's a little bit of extreme, but, like, you know, the idea, like, was that they would, you know, be selling things or that if you paid money for certain things, it would give you certain blessings and certain um, ways out of this. And I remember watching that and being like, how ridiculous was the church back then? But at the same time, this is what everyone bought into and believed because this was what pra was practiced, and this is what the this is the only influence they had. This is like when the printing press was still pretty new, so not everyone had, you know, a copy of the Bible with in their homes. So what are they influenced by? They're influenced by what they're seeing and hearing from other people. They're letting their culture dictate how they then interpreted religion and interpreted Christianity, and interpreted the Bible, interpreted God's will, and it all becomes skewed by this. And Martin Luther encountered that and gets so turned off by it that he thinks about leaving the church altogether. And then one of his teachers turns him, just points him, just says, pour yourself into scripture, like let yourself, and so he does. He reads the book of Romans and it changes his whole life. He reads the book of Romans and it leads him to nail his thesis on the church door because of what, Scripture teaches. If you love the Lord your God with all your mind, then you will adhere to the word of God. And you will make that everything as far as your foundation on what you think and what you believe to be true about life, about God, about your relationship with him. What does that look like? What does that mean? How does that mean that we should then live? These are kind of hard questions that we kind of almost have to force ourselves to ask all the time. You know, if, before we start to get into that trap of like trying to justify ourselves and trying to make ourselves feel good because, you know, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I love God completely. Of course I do. I've been a, you know, I've been a pastor for eight years before. I, you know, I went to school and learned all this stuff. Like, of course I do. It's very easy for us to start to justify ourselves, but are we willing to ask ourselves these hard questions about what's really going on in our hearts? What's really going on in our spirits? What's driving us? What's going on in our mind? 
What are the things we believe? And we know if you turn back, turning back to Luke, clearly this man doesn't really ask himself these questions because he just kind of breezes right by that first statement. Like he doesn't even ask any questions about what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. To him, all he, he's worried about justifying himself about is, is his neighbor. He says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. I love that Luke puts that in there because Luke like giving us a little insight to what's really fueling this guy. Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who's our neighbor? So second part of the Shema, love, love your neighbor as yourselves. What does that mean? Let's talk about who first. Like who in the heck are we talking about? And that's kind of what the man was is trying to say, like, you know, yeah, I love other people. But it's almost like he knows in his mind, like, yeah, but I don't love everybody. I mean, I don't really, and I don't really have to. I mean, that's clearly not you know, what you're asking me of God. You're not asking me to love everybody because there's some people out there that just need to be burned. <laughs> just need you to drop like fire and brimstone down and just wipe them out. And this, I mean, and this wasn't an uncommon belief for Jews. I mean, like you look at the story of Jonah, like the story of Jonah, what is the thing that fuels him to run away? It's not that he's afraid that he's going to get beat up if he goes to Nineveh. It's that he's afraid that they're going to repent and God's going to forgive them. And they don't deserve that in Jonah's mind. They deserve to be wiped out. That's what Jonah wants. So this man's like, so who's my neighbor? Like, can't mean everybody. So Jesus tells this story as a reply. I love when Jesus tells stories to get his points home. Talks about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was about a, I think it was like 18 miles. Um, I, had to look at, I, was, I was looking at some stuff. Um, and it was known as kind of a, a, a dangerous road because there was like caves alongside the road where like, den, where like thieves and robbers could hide, you know, so they could pop out and, and, and ambush people, especially if they're traveling by themselves. Um, so most people, you know, didn't always travel this road on their own when they traveled it. Um, so he's, he's walking the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls among robbers. They beat him up, rob him of everything, strip him down, um, leave him half dead on the road. And Jesus teaches in this, in this story, he says, now a priest comes by. Now, if a priest was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, that means the priest was probably just getting done having served the temple, having served at the temple. He's just gotten done with these religious acts that he would have been doing for the people of Israel on behalf of the people as their priest, probably whether he was burning sacrifices or whatever he was doing, he was doing these acts on behalf of the people because he loves God and he loves the people. And he's walking down the road, sees this man all beat up, half naked, and in order to like <clears throat> abstain himself from having to help him, he kind of just walks along the other side of the road, just passes him by. And then a Levite comes, <clears throat> excuse me, a Levite comes. Um, now Levi, the, the Levites were also, you know, that was the tribe that was meant to be people of priests. The fact that Jesus calls him Levite means he probably wasn't at a status that he was an actual priest. But since he was a Levite, he would also be, Helping, He would kind of be a servant to the priest. He would kind of be someone who would uh, just 
you know, do some of the, you know, gathering of things, whatever needed to happen, like Levites would serve in that capacity. All right. So it's another guy who's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, who's probably just gotten done having helped priests out doing all these religious acts and different things that they would be doing. And he also passes them by because he doesn't want that kind of a burden on himself. He doesn't want to have to worry about that. And so Jesus fixes the hero of his story, <clears throat> someone who would have definitely just driven this point home for who Jesus thinks the neighbor is. He picks a Samaritan. And Samaritans were hated by Jews, absolutely hated. They were considered half-breeds. They were kind of this mix of people that happened when the Assyrians had uh, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel um, hundreds of years before. And the way that the Assyrians would kind of like... um, uh, diffuse any kind of like rebellions, potential rebellions, you know, they wouldn't move people into exile. They'd move some people all over. They kind of scatter everybody and they would interbreed. Because the theory, the idea was, you know, if you're worried about the Jews being a problem for you someday and rising up in rebellion, the way to get rid of them is make them so they're not just Jewish anymore. Now they're Jews and Syrian or whatever, you know, different, you know, culture there was. And so Samaria, so the the land of Samaria uh, was in between like the lower kingdom of Judah where where Jerusalem was and the northern area of Galilee where Jesus was, was where Jesus was raised. Um, And in the middle was this land of Samaria where the Samaritans lived, who were considered half-breeds. They had different views of of the Jewish faith that the Jews despised, the way they interpreted the Old Testament law. The Jews despised the fact that they would even pretend to be Jews because they weren't Jews. And everything about them, the Jews just hated. In fact, they hated them so much that they would add like weeks to their journey to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem or Jerusalem up to Galilee by going around the whole land of Samaria just so they didn't have to step foot in their soil. That's how much they hated them, despised them, did not like them. And yet Jesus picks this Samaritan as the hero of the story. It's a Samaritan who comes by and when he sees the man, he's filled with compassion. It says, Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan we don't know anything about where he was journeying to, what he was doing. Um, I'm sure he had somewhere to go because um, you didn't just travel for fun back then. Um, there was always, was always a purpose to be to taking this journey, especially on this road. Um, but when he sees the man, he drops everything. Nothing else matters but taking care of this man because he sees him in need. And even though the Samaritan would have known that he was a Jewish man and that the Samaritans were how they, and he knew how they looked at, looked down on them. Samaritan drops everything to help him out 
and do everything. He gives him his own animal to ride on. He bandages him, uses him, everything he has to bandage and take care of him. He gives of his money. Two denarii would have, would have basically allowed the man to stay there for several days. It's a lot of money. I mean, you equate that to what it would be to spend the night in a hotel, like, you know, I don't know, your, your average, even like low budget hotel probably costs around $60, $80 a night. You're going to pay someone for a week, that's like $500 you're dropping down there. That's like, for some people, that's a week's paycheck. Samaritan just gives of it freely, just so that he could be taken care of. And he says this, um, so at the end of the story, Jesus says, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So this man was looking to justify himself, wanting to feel good about the fact that he loved his fellow Jews. And Jesus brings up the Samaritan and says, so which of these three were the neighbor? And I love that in verse 37. You know, one of the commentaries pointed this out. And I hadn't really ever thought about it. The Jewish man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, well, yeah, the one who had mercy on him. It's like he knows, but he can't bring himself to say it. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to say the Samaritan because that just, it's almost like, feel, like just shows his, like, his, uh, his level of prejudice, his level of hate, that he won't even bring himself to, to, to say the words. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Definition of a neighbor. The story is teaching us clearly that neighbor being a neighbor. It's not about race. It's not about class. It's not about location. It's not about someone who's right next to you. You know, your neighbors are not limited to the people who live literally right next to you. Your neighbors are not limited to the people that you interact with every day. Your neighbors are not limited to the people you are comfortable with, that you are comfortable living with, interacting with. A neighbor is about anyone you see who is in need. A neighbor is any person that you happen to encounter that you see is in need. So with that definition of neighbor being anybody that you are put into contact with that you might see in need, now what do we do with that statement of love your neighbor as yourself? So what does that look like? What does the actual act of loving your neighbor as yourself even mean? Because, you know, it's very easy, I think, at times. Again, for me, this is a problem, especially when I'm trying to justify myself as far as how much I'm loving my neighbors, to start saying, well, you know, I do things for other people, God. Like, you know, I'm helping our gospel community, like, you know, deliver food to the, um, to, to people who can't get to the food bank, you know, um, we're, you know, we're helping Lighthouse Ministries with, by doing, uh, work, work at this home that, that, that no one else is going to do, you know, we, we have these things, and I'm not saying any of these things are bad, obviously, like, they're, they're things that we need to be doing and, and should be doing, um, but we like to look at some of the things and, and kind of use it as a checkbox of saying, like, yeah, I'm, I'm accomplishing this, God. I'm, 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 I am loving other people. 
I am doing these things sacrificially. I am sacrificing my time. Um, I am giving of my money or my resources. You know, I am doing these things for others. And we love to look at it as like a checkbox as if we're fulfilling this kind of duty that we're being asked to do. And I think when we look at it that, we're, it, when we look at the, command, the great commandments as that is just a duty as something that we're needing to check off a list, that's where we're totally missing it. That's where we're totally missing the idea of what it even means. If we look as loving our, the God, we, we, we wouldn't, at least we wouldn't say that we do this. We wouldn't say that we look at loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul as something that we're just trying to check off of. I'm trying to read my Bible because I need to love the God, love my God with all my mind. I'm trying to, you know, uh, um, spend time in prayer because I'm trying to love God with all my soul. I'm trying to do this. You know, we wouldn't say we're trying to do it as a checklist. Hopefully what we're hoping and praying that will happen as we continue along in our faith as we continue to let the Holy Spirit transform us and, and, and make us new, is that we would say, no, this is actually truly how we're becoming. We are becoming people who are loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our, with all our mind. And it's got to be the same way with how we're looking at loving our neighbors as ourselves. Not like we're looking at it as like, what kind of checklist can I fulfill so I can make myself feel better? What kind of checklist can I accomplish so I can get my gospel community leaders off my back? You know, what kind of things do I need to do so that Daniel will be impressed with me? You know, so that he'll stand up there and he'll, 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 he'll give me that, you know, verbal pat on the back. But if we look at the idea of loving what love means, and loving our neighbor means as ourselves. I think one of the first questions you got to ask yourself is, have you really thought about how much you love yourself? Have you really thought about how much time you love to spend for yourself on things that you love, on things that you enjoy? How much money do you enjoy spending on yourself and the things that you care about, things that you're excited about, things that you're passionate about? We really ask ourselves these hard questions about really, really, do you really get how much you love yourself and now you're supposed to love your neighbor just that much? Are you really driven to feel that way? Because I know for myself, in my flesh, absolutely not. Man, when I, when I confront myself with this idea of like how much I actually love myself with my time, with my money, with my stuff, with, with my passions and what things I'm excited about, like... I love myself quite a bit. And I'm going to confess, like, it's not easy to feel that same way about, those other, about other people in my life, especially ones that I'm not like, that are way different than me, that are harder to be with, harder to get along with. It's supposed to be something that's totally transforming the way we live, the way we are. And it's only going to happen by surrendering our lives to Christ. And Jesus knows this. And this is what he's trying to, like, it's this thing he's trying to teach that the, the, the man who's confronting him with this thing probably doesn't even totally get the depth of what Jesus is trying to hammer home here. 
This man's just caring about justifying himself. Jesus kind of puts a smite on that. He's no longer feeling justified, so he probably walked away dejected, being like, yeah, I don't know if I buy that. Jesus is trying to hammer home this idea that this idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself is impossible if left to our own desires. He's trying to hammer home this idea that if you're just trying to do this on your own, if you're just trying to accomplish all these things off a checklist, you're never going to come close to accomplishing what God is wanting from you. You're never going to come close to doing all that it is that the law requires you to do. You need a savior. You need someone who's done it for you. And by your faith in him, can send his Holy Spirit to transform you, can transform your life, transform your heart. And are these things that we're praying for, praying that God will continually transform the way we think, the way we care, the way we love, what it actually means to transform the way we see people, see the people that are in our lives so that it's not all about us anymore, but it's about them. This is the kind of transformation that God expects from those who would be called his sons and daughters. This is the kind of transformation that God is trying to do in your life if you are claiming to be a follower of him. And by surrendering him, this is the kind of transformation he can make. And it's serious stuff when we talk about the difference between letting this just be something that is a duty to you or letting it be something that is actually life-changing, that is actually transforming your life. Because I think, I think for a lot of people in churches across America, churches across the world, that it, there is such a, um, there's such an easy hold to find yourself in where you are kind of justifying yourself by feeling like you're doing just enough to make God happy. I'm going to just enough church to make you happy, God. I'm doing just enough good things to make you happy, God. I'm doing, you know, we, we, we say we believe in the gospel of Christ and that we are saved by grace alone, but yet everything in how we live and how we think and how we act tells us that we are trying to do this by the stuff that we're doing that we are trying to be saved by what we accomplish and what we do to make you happy. But when a life is actually changed and transformed, it looks different. And it's this changed life that God is going to care about and God is looking for, that God expects from you if you really are surrendering your life to Christ, if you really are putting your faith in Christ and actually asking the Spirit to transform your life, it's going to be this thing that he sees at the end. Matthew 25, starting verse 31. Jesus does this teaching about the final judgment. And it's this type of teaching that really drives me as far as my prayers, as far as asking God to continually change my heart as far as how I see other people. Because it's teachings like this that should almost kind of scare us a little bit. Not that we can't live with code of hope and knowing in Christ that we are saved through Christ alone. Not that we don't have the assurance of that, but that 
we should always be checking ourselves that we're not trying to accomplish our own salvation through the good things that we're doing. In verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. the things I draw from that passage. One is, again, don't be confused with that passage and walk away thinking, okay, so I, I, got, I just got to do more than you're saying. I just got to, I got to, I got to keep doing more off my checklist in order to really make God happy, make, really got, make Christ impressed. It's not what we're getting at. It's not what, that's not what I don't, that's not what the scripture's teaching. It's not what I hope you don't hear from me. But what I believe this is saying is that when a heart is truly being changed by Christ, when your faith is truly in Christ and you're asking him to transform you and transform the way you think, transform the way you care, transform the way you love, that you will see as a result the kind of love for other people that is burning inside you so that when you see a neighbor in need, you're compelled to help them and do whatever it takes to help them. That you're willing to drop everything that you're doing because you realize that they matter just as much as you do. And I think the times that we don't do that, we need to be convicted about the fact that we still are loving ourselves a little bit more than them. That we still think our time is a little bit more important to spend on us rather than them. And we need to just come to Christ in those moments when you're convicted about that and just pray that he would continue to transform, your, transform you. The Holy Spirit promises to continue this work in you, to continue to transform your life, continue to transform your desires, the things that you are passionate about, the way that you think, the way that you prioritize, but you got to come on your knees humbly, admitting your faults, repenting of the ways that you aren't like that, 
and asking him to continue to transform you in that way. Don't be one of the ones who are blinded to this, who are thinking to yourself, ah, I'm not that bad. I still got, you know, I'm still, like I said, I got this, all this stuff that I can tally up for you, Nathan, as far as what I'm doing. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you, on your own, are accomplishing all that it is. Because that is by far not true. (laughs) Don't fool yourself into justifying yourself. Because the last thing you want to be is on the wrong side of things at the end because you thought you justified yourself by all the things you did rather than leaning on God's justification through Jesus Christ. Rather than leaning on him and his perfection to then continue working you of transforming your life. We're going to transition into a time of communion. And during this time, I just um, want to just ask that you guys um, would truly be praying um, and asking yourself these reflecting questions. In what ways are you still struggling to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? What, what are you holding on to that you're still not giving up to him? Truly ask yourself, like, hard questions. What are the things that are influencing those? And also ask yourself the hard questions about what is, what, what is my life looking like as far as loving my neighbor as I love myself? Am I really doing that? Am I just loving the people that are easy to love? Am I just sacrificial to the people that are easy to be sacrificial to? Because I know they'll be appreciative. I know they won't take advantage. Be reflecting on these things and then come to, the, come to the table knowing that you have a Savior in Jesus Christ who is powerful, who is perfect, who justifies you, makes you stand righteous before the throne of God. And you can come to, your, you can come to, the, and you can come to him on your knees and ask him to continue the good work through his Holy Spirit to transform your life, to help change the ways that we in our nature still hold on to the things that we care about. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for just who you are. I thank you so much for just your amazing love. And Father, I thank you for the example that you set before us with your son, Jesus Christ, this idea of what does it look like to be perfectly in love with you, to love you with all our heart, mind, and soul, to love you with just with, without putting anything else in front of you, especially ourselves. And thank you for the example that he served as far as loving those who hated him, loving those who... Um, we're with him, loving everybody, Lord, that he encountered as he loved himself. Father, I pray that today we would come to you, Lord, in repentance, in 
asking for in forgiveness, Lord, and we, and we walk away with hope and knowing that your love is perfect, your grace is a gift that we can all hold on to, that we can walk away with security and hope in you, but Lord, that we would also walk away with a desire to continue to see our lives transformed more by you. Because Lord, you are more worth it than anything else in this world. Living this life, chasing after the things of you, following these commandments, Lord, brings us way more joy than anything else this world could offer. Help us defeat any kind of lies that we would believe that other that our joy can come just as good from anything else, Lord, and just seek after you only. Pray this in your son's name, amen.